Hey, good morning. Worship team, thank you for joining us as one people into the presence of God. It's, it's beautiful to just, there's moments where I just love to sing out and just be a part of that corporate worship. And sometimes I try to sing loud enough, like, I want all of you to hear me. <laughs> but there's those times where uh, just being still and hearing the voices of God's people singing together. It's just so beautiful. And something about being together, one, in spirit, unified around worship of our God. It's what heaven will be. We see that in Revelation, around the throne, all people from all tribes, all places, all tongues, all nations, worshiping God. Unified, together. That's what this gospel of freedom is about. Galatians, as we get into our second uh, sermon today, we're going to be talking about the gospel itself. Paul is going to bring out that there is one thing that brings us together. There's one thing that unifies us. There's so many peripheral things. As we think about the church and we think about theology and doctrine. So within the bounds of orthodoxy, I'm not talking about all the fringe stuff. I'm talking about with just reading the scriptures, we come to different conclusions at times, and there's all these peripheral things. And if you don't believe me, just go back and listen to the Revelation series. I'm sure I said something you totally disagree with. But that's not what unifies us. It is the gospel. It is our Lord. It is Jesus who brings us together as one and gives us new life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be talking about what causes us to be his people. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open to Galatians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you want to have that in your hands, there's one in the chair in front of you. And that is a gift to you if you would like to take that. Uh, you can take that home and, and have that as your Bible if you don't have one at home. Uh, if you are balancing coffee and kids and stuff and all that, you can just follow along on the screen too. That's permissible as well. So Galatians chapter 1, uh, I'll be reading uh, verses 3 through 10, and uh, then I'll pray, and we'll go from there. Um, any of you guys have a, have a Bible that's just like a good friend, a trusty friend? I found this guy the other day. He's been with me from the mission field to a decade in Maryland. To, and he got lost. I got here because we used the ESV. <laughs> I kind of set him aside. I found this good friend of mine. This is the New American Standard. Um, I've just enjoyed reading in it. I, I hope you have a Bible that's like that. Like, if, if we're doing Bible drill, like, this is the Bible I want in my hands because I know where everything is in this one. You hand me another Bible. I know the address. I can find it, but I'm like, it's in here. I find stuff so well in this one. As I say that, I'll probably be like, where is that later in the sermon? Um, <clears throat> I hope you have a copy of God's Word that feels that way to you. This feels like a trusted friend. When you pick it up, you're like, yeah, this one just feels right. It's the one I've read all this time, and it just fits me. Galatians. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. This is what Paul writes to the churches in the region. He says, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The word of the Lord for us. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, Paul, through the power of your Spirit, has so beautifully told us that there's no other gospel. There's nothing else that is good news. So today... Holy Spirit, press on our hearts to see Jesus afresh, to experience anew what we experienced when we received the gospel the first time, to to understand that great grace that was extended to us, to just bask in your steadfast, marvelous love. May we be encouraged, encouraged and and built up this morning. May you strengthen our ankles to stand firm on you, Lord. You are our foundation. No matter what is going on in our life, may we be encouraged by this gospel in Christ to have all that we need to stand May hope abound in our circumstances. May you be glorified, Father, for it was your good will, your pleasure to redeem us. And so as we look at this passage, we are asking, Father, that we, after receiving from you this morning, that we would live a life worthy of this gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Paul, in uh, verse 3, starts his letter to the churches in this way. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul often opens his letters to the churches this way. He says, grace and peace. And it's a really common way of greeting the the. Gentiles often would say grace in, in, as they would greet one another, and the Jews would say shalom. They would say peace, and he's brought these together, grace and peace. But as we're thinking about 
the gospel today, where he's, where he's thinking about the gospel as well, he's also saying grace and peace, grace to you through Jesus. This must come first. You must have the grace of Christ extended to you so that you can experience true peace. He's saying, may you be walking in the grace of Jesus and experiencing his peace. That's a blessing he's saying to you today. I mean, it, you, it's that formal greeting, salutations, however you want to start your letter, right? But Paul, when he says this, what he's saying to you this morning is may the grace of God be upon you. Let me sit with that for a second. May the grace of God be upon you. And may you be at peace. Because you understand grace, because you have his great grace, may you be at peace in the midst of your circumstance right now. That is the will of the Father for you today. Grace and peace to you through Jesus as the will of the Father. So he says, grace. By grace we come to God. It is his unmerited favor that bids us come. It's beautiful. Unmerited favor. Grace to you. We don't deserve to come into the throne room of heaven. We don't deserve to be in his presence. We don't deserve a great salvation or a savior, but yet we have it. Grace, unmerited favor given to you. Grace, which brings you peace. I often think of the scene uh, of Esther coming before the king in the movie uh, One Night with the King. So we're going to watch this movie clip. It's three minutes long. And for some of you, this will probably be the best part of the sermon. But let's watch it and, and we'll make some comments after.
unsummoned. Protocol was that she had to be summoned in order to come before the king. And she goes, and this is a true story. This is in our scriptures. This is a rendition of what really happened. She goes before the king to save her people. She comes unsummoned. And there's protocols broken. She must be killed. Her life is forfeit. And so the guys are calling for the guards to execute her. And at the last moment, the king, in the scriptures, it says he just holds out a scepter, you know, for somatic. You got to grab the sword and do all that. But the point is, his great love for his queen, like he could not let her be killed. He loved her. And he holds out his hand and grabs the sword and holds out the scepter. And the scepter is the pardon. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with this offense. I will cover it. I will pardon it. I will allow it. And he allows her to come. He does this because of this great love he has for her. How much more does the Father love us? How much more? I mean, if we're going to take this scene for just a moment and allegorize it just a little bit. Yeah, I'm playing with the text, so I know that. But think of it for just a moment. Each of us are bid to come, but we're not allowed to come. Like, we can't come before holy, holy, holy God unless there is a pardon. Because our sin is so great, our offense is so vile that the wrath of God would be poured out on sinners and they would be separated from him. But God's great love for us holds out the scepter through Jesus Christ. He is the pardon. He is the one that allows us to come. So we can come with confidence. Here she comes scared. She opens the doors and she's like, I may perish, but I have to go. We have a veil that has been torn and we can come into the throne room of God in front of the Father at any moment because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we need not fear for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin has been dealt with, the pardon has been given and we can come in grace, unmerited grace to you which brings peace in Jesus by the will of the Father. That's how he opens this section of the letter. Like, you have this probably in the mind of most Jews. They're thinking, I get to come before the king, and they're thinking, well, there's that time in Esther's life having to come before the king. I don't have to fear that anymore. I can come in front of the king, the king of glory. How much more does God love us? Jeremiah 31.3 says this, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Grace to you brings the love of God. It's an everlasting love. And it's faithful, meaning it doesn't waver. It doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning. He's not like, I'm really pleased with you this week. Man, 
you know, let's go get some good things together. I want to take you out and get you a treat. You like, we do that as parents. And we like, hey, kids have been doing great this week or this month. And like, I want to get them a treat because this, I'm just so appreciative. Like they've been obedient, and they've been listening, and they've been doing all this stuff. God doesn't do that. Why? Because his love never changes. It's consistent. It's given to us without wavering, without changing. It is fully given to you. He's not saying, if you do good this week, I'll give you more of my love. He says, no, you have all of my love. Just as the Father loves the Son, so He loves you right now. If you are in Christ, the way that the Father looks at the Son and beholds Him and loves Him because He is His Son, that's how He loves His people. It's faithful. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver. It's everlasting. We see in Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Because of that love, we can take refuge in him. That's peace. Grace and peace. I have the grace of God, the love of God being poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit given to me because of what Christ has done and I can take refuge in him. Life may be really kicking your butt right now. I don't know. Take refuge in the love of God. Take refuge in his peace because he wants you. He's bidding you come. Be with me. Come near and I will draw near. You can hide in the shadow of my wing. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. Let me, I'm going to stop right there. He's here in our midst. Do you believe that, church? Like right now, the Holy Spirit is with us and God is watching over. The Father from heaven is watching. The Son interceding from heaven. The Spirit is among us and in us. And he is in our midst. God is in this place. He's among us. His love is here with us. He's a mighty one who will save. What are you going through? His love is mighty to save you, to carry you through, to bring you through the hardships of life. Because he has something better for you, a place with him in eternity and a new heaven and a new earth that he's going to create. He is mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. When was the last time someone has told you, you know, I think God's just really pleased with you? I, I would stumble over that. Like, I'd be like he's, like, he's pleased with me? Like, he's glad? Yes. He is glad in you. He is transforming you. He is changing you. He is conforming you into the image of his son. He is creating you to be what you were to be before the fall. He is, he's redeemed you. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And he's sanctifying you now. And he's glad in you. He rejoices over you. You bring him glory and you bring him joy. And he loves you with a steadfast, everlasting love. That's grace. Grace and peace. He'll quiet you with his love. 
when life is stirring and you don't know what to do and your head's spinning and everything seems out of control, draw near to the Father. Draw near through Christ Jesus and he'll quiet you. He'll say, it'll be okay. He'll calm you. He'll be with you. He'll bring you peace. We, we, we quote this scripture all the time in the church. You know, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your mind in Christ Jesus. And, and how many of us have truly said, I've experienced that today. If you've experienced that, raise your hand. Like the peace of God that passes all understanding. Uh, that's only half of us. That's a promise for you. He wants you to have that. So if you didn't raise your hand, if you can't think of a time where the peace of God just, it didn't make sense. Like, why am I okay right now? Like, it's okay. I know. God's got me. His peace is on me. If you haven't experienced that, ask yourself, why haven't I experienced it? And I'm going to tell you it's because you're not drawing near as he wants you to. He's saying, draw near to me. Come and experience my love, which is steadfast and everlasting, that I want to lavish on you, lavish grace on you, so that you will be quieted and you will have peace in the midst of a storm. You can walk through these trials. And I'm not saying you're going to be stupid, joyful, like in the midst of something bad, and you're like, ha, 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 it's all good. Like, we know that person needs some help, right? But he will give you peace where you just know in the inner man, the inner woman, it's going to be okay. This storm is just it. It's just a storm. It came suddenly, and it's going to go as fast as it seemed to come in, and we're going to be fine. He sings over you. I can't wait to look at my heavenly Father in heaven and say, what, what is the song you like to sing to me? Because I'm pretty sure he has a song for each of us. He quiets us with his love and he has a song that he sings over us. That's grace. God, creator of all things, creates us in his image. That's grace. But he wants relationship with us. And because sin separates, he sends his son and redeems us and restores a new relationship. That's grace. Pours out his love that we've just been talking about. And on top of it, he sings songs over you. I mean, this should just kind of like blow your mind. You should be like, God does that for me. And he sings over his bride, the church. He sings over us. He quiets us with his love. We can be at peace as we draw near to Jesus. This is how we read John talking about the love of God towards us in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And this gets to the gospel. And this is love of God was made manifest among us. It, it, we could see it. It was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's the offering. That's the payment. That's the sacrifice for our sins. That's what that word propitiation means. 
That's a good theological word, kids. Learn that word and be like, Jesus is our propitiation. They'll be like, that kid's smart. Learn that word, guys. That's a good one. It means the offering, the payment. So Paul, as he's getting into this letter to the churches, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 4 and 5 who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. So Paul, in just two short verses, recaps the gospel message for the Galatian churches. It's solely built on Christ and his cross. And if we just look at this, It just says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Well, what's not mentioned there? Well, he doesn't go into all these other peripheral doctrines and peripheral things. Those things can divide, and we have experienced it, and they have divided in some extent. They shouldn't divide us. We should be at peace with one another. So we need to press into the gospel and press into Christ so we can be at peace with each other. He doesn't go into those things. He doesn't say that those are the essentials. Those are secondary. He doesn't go into preferred doctrines that that people love so much. It's not a moment where he goes into a dissertation on election and free will or free grace. He doesn't pause to point out the various views of end times when Jesus will return. He doesn't ask them to contemplate the proper structure of the church or how all things came into being at creation or the keeping of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't ask them about the proper use of worship and congregational singing or even the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is saying to the Galatian churches, you need not to be dividing over the law. You need to be unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He simply states, Christ gave himself for our sins because we were in bondage and needed rescue. Not from the presence of sin, but the power of sin as well. It had power over us, and he broke its back. He rescued us from it. He rescues us. He forgives our sins. We needed rescue. He made them powerless over our souls and rescued us from what? The evil age, from this evil age. I'm sure many of us can look at our culture today and just say, man, we're living in this present evil age. Well, yeah, it's a fallen world and it's riddled with sin. And if we are honest and we call things by their biblical name, sin is evil. And the way people live for sin and self is evil. It's against God. It's against what he has ordained from the beginning, how he wanted life to be lived. And he says, the power of this evil age that we are in, Jesus will rescue us. Jesus can save us. The grace of God can bring you out, help carry us through the circumstances we're in. He rescues us from this evil age, which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So 
that you and I who are in Jesus, we may have to live in this world for a season, but we are no longer of this world, which will be judged by fire. So we're rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're still here in this world, but we're no longer of this world. We now have a heavenly home, a heavenly kingdom. We are now sojourners together looking for the holy city to come on our way. Verse 6, he goes on and says this. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So this, this rescue is rooted in what Jesus has done at the cross. This is how we are saved, by Jesus who gave himself for us, who was accursed for us. There's no way that we could save ourselves. He is the one who has done it. That rescue is rooted in the work of Jesus by the love of the Father for people he created to glorify him and enjoy his presence forever. And Paul says, I'm amazed you're leaving that so quickly. I'm amazed. Now, this word amazed means astonished, unbelievable, or marvel at. See, Paul understands that that some people will turn away because some will. We know that. Like, there are people who will hear the gospel and they will maybe for a season come and, and listen and contemplate and pray about it or maybe even join the church for a little while in some ways. And then eventually they just like, yeah, it's not for me. And they just walk away. Paul knows that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a turning of these fellowships to something else. He's like, I marvel how quickly I gave you the gospel of grace and this other teaching came in and it swept through and you guys have had your head turned around and now you're going after this in mass. He's like, I'm marveling at this. Like, what is going on? See, he, he understands. Some people will have a beginning with the gospel and never really accept it. We see this in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9 and verses 18 through 23. So this is the parable of the sower. I'm just going to read these two sections, a little long, but they speak for themselves. And I think Paul understands this, and he's saying there's more happening here. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, and since they had no depth of soil, uh, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no roots, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, the disciples go and ask him, like, hey, why are you speaking in parables? And what does this one in particular mean? And then he says this, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. 
as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, or account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. So Jesus is given this parable, and Paul knows this teaching. He's saying, I understand that I've given you this word, and for some people, that's going to be the reality. We see this in, in the church, but he's saying there's, there's been this turning away to something that is not the gospel. These Judaizers have crept in. And they said it's about being faithful to the law. That's, you can't, the law is holy, the law is good, you can't get rid of the law, you have to fulfill the law, you have to do the law, plus have faith in Jesus. You have to become Jewish, you have to do these things. This is the gospel, and Paul says that's not the gospel. The Judaizers also came in and said, Paul is preaching a gospel of licentiousness, meaning you are saying that it's just so easy that God will forgive you, you just have to believe and God will forgive you, so then you're going to just go and do whatever the heck you want. You're going to sow your wild oats and pray for a crop failure on the weekend and, and, and in the end feel like I have insurance against the fire, so I'm okay. And Paul says both of those extremes are wrong. These, I'm not preaching that and I'm not saying that this is good news because this isn't good news over here about the law. He says it's in the grace of Jesus by faith alone and that transforms us to live a life for him, not for ourselves. So Paul knows these things, and he's, and he's asking them to think about this gospel message. He understands the sower principle very well. He says, you're turning away from a person, which is Christ, and you're turning to a philosophy of men. That's really what he's getting at. There's many different doctrines of men, many different philosophies of life. He's saying, but you're leaving a person, the person of Jesus, for a philosophy the gospel is, is what brings us into relationship with God. That changes our very life. God may use ordinary means of grace or extraordinary means of grace, but at the end, it's the gospel that we must believe and receive to be saved. So these philosophies of the world or of religion or spirituality, they move us away from the person of Jesus, and they orient us into a structure of spirituality or religion. We start doing things that look spiritual or religious. We start acting in our own strength. And so those philosophies are rooted in how well you can apply it and maintain it in your strength. The gospel is rooted in his strength, not ours. So what's happening, verse 7, he says, you're, you're hearing this different gospel, which really is not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So some are disturbing you and distorting the gospel, which is not a gospel at all. So there's three things he points out. One, all other gospels are illegitimate. 
They're not the real deal. There was that, okay, I'm dating myself with this commercial. I like old commercials and movies and stuff. But remember the Ray Charles one? You got the right one, baby. Uh-huh. It was a Pepsi commercial. It's like, you can have all the other sodas, but if you don't have this one, you don't have the right one. Paul's, he's doing that. He's saying, these philosophies are illegitimate. They're not the right one. They're not the right one. And he's also saying that these other gospels, they introduce anxiety and trouble into your life because these gospels are distortions. How do they introduce anxiety and trouble? Have you been good enough lately? Has God become Santa Claus to you? Does he have a list and he checks it twice and he finds out if you're naughty and nice? Some people live that way. They think that God's going to give me good things if I'm good and He'll give me judgment and bad things if I'm bad and I have to perform and I have to do. And, and then they work themselves up with all this religious activity to be acceptable before God. And Paul says, it's by the gospel of Jesus, by the grace of God. Like, you can't do enough. If you could do the law, Jesus would not come. He wouldn't have to. And we live in a culture that says, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. How do you do that, by the way? I've never been able to get myself off the ground, no matter how hard I pull. It's frustrating. It's, it's riddled with anxiety. It's riddled with trouble. Because for some of us, we have a steel constitution, and we're going to gut it out, and we're going to do it. It doesn't matter. Like, we just do it. You get up, and you do it. I, I found that, for me, one of those things that I've just kept doing and doing and doing is watering my garden. I hate getting up early in the morning before the sun gets too hot. I have to get out there, and I have to water it, and I have to water all the plants on the deck. My wife has got so many things potted now. It's so crazy, right? I got to get up, and I got to take the dog out, and I got to take care of the rabbits, and I have to do all this before I do anything. It's like, I feel like a little bit of a farmer. It's like, I got some chores, but I know I'm complaining. Those of you who really have worked on farms, you're like, suck it up, dude. <laughs> but there's that, like, I've gotten to this place where I'm determined, like, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do it. The alarm's going off, I'm going to get up, I'm going to take care of these things, and, like, I'm just going to do it. And after a while, I got to this place, now, the alarm goes off, and I'm just, it's kind of rote. I just get up and I just do it. It it doesn't bother. At first, I was like, oh, you know, like, I got to do it. Some of us are like that with religion. Some of us are like that with our relationship with God. It's like, for a while, we're frustrated or whatever, but now we're kicked it into neutral almost. It's like, we can just do it. We, we get up, we do, we go to the church, we do our tithe, we do all the different things that we have to do to be a good Christian boy or girl. Some of us, though, it's riddled with trouble and anxiety because we're not wired that way. And it feels futile. And I'm not receiving a relationship with God. And I don't feel that love that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. And I'm not receiving that peace that I read about in the scriptures, and and at some point, I'm troubled. I'm worried. Am I doing this right? Does God really love me? Is this really what it's all about? Or is this all there is? Those philosophies of the world, that's what they give you. They're illegitimate gospels that bring anxiety and trouble, and they distort the true work of Jesus. In this setting, there was an exalting of the law. The law was good and holy, so they say you must keep it. You must 
live, do, act, talk a certain way, and all will be well, and just believe on Jesus as well. Become Jewish, do the works of the law, God will be happy. People still do that today. That's why you see in church, uh, that's why you see that churches often get labeled as hypocritical. Because they look at how well you do it. If that's the gospel, how well you do it, well, yeah, we're all hypocrites. We're all going to screw it up somewhere. That's what the world does. They look at us and they say, oh, what's about that? You guys aren't keeping it. Like, you hypocrites. And some of us feel that way, right? Because we believed in this doing system. And when we know that we're hypocritical, man, guilt and shame just wash over us. Or people will say this, I've tried that. You ever met anybody who did that? Yeah, I used to go to the church. Yeah, I tried that. It just didn't work for me. Because to them, salvation and life with God is about doing. And I tried it, and it didn't give me what I wanted. There was an exchange. I paid in. I didn't get the dividend I wanted, so I go on to the next thing. I tried it. If we're not careful, we can exalt even the very word of God and our obedience to it over the Son of God. We got to be careful. Like, we love the Bible. We love this revelation. We love that God has spoken to us in the scriptures, but we can't exalt this over the Son because then we can fall into legalism, into doing, into striving in our own strength to be holy. This is a guide. This shows us where we fall short. This shows us where the Spirit wants to work in our life. This shows us the promises. There's so much good here, but don't exalt it to the wrong place. Or people will say this today. We hear this in our culture. Just live your truth. I'll live my truth. Some of mine's mixed in with yours. And, you know, like, it's all good. Just whatever, you know. And whether it's progressive Christianity or other religious beliefs, they're, they're just, they're, they're not the gospel. They are a, a distortion of the gospel. They're totally different and they do not save. We have expressions like all roads lead to Rome, there's many ways to God. Each religion is just a part of the whole. Uh, true, the gospel is, is rooted in social justice and, and, and these kinds of things. Now, Paul is pointing out that there are people who will trouble you. There's people today who will trouble you with other gospels. They will speak to you about other things and say, this is how you have a right relationship with God. These other gospels are stern taskmasters in the end. They demand much and they give you nothing in return. So verses eight and nine, we read this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed as we have said before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So Paul says, if I come with a new message, I am to be accursed. If I deviated from the gospel I gave you. That was a good question for me. Like, have I changed? Have I preached something different? And I went back, actually went back five years because that's what Jeff had on the live stream recording. So I went back, all the way back to what we had at the very beginning. I listened to my Easter sermon. And I was like, I haven't changed. 
That's what Paul's saying. There's no shadow of turning with God. The gospel is the gospel. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't need to be tweaked for the modern era. He says, if I came to you and I now preach a different gospel, I should be accursed. Meaning, I am a false teacher. Meaning, I am on the road to perdition. Meaning, I'm going to hell. Accursed. Anathema. Stern language. That's what he's saying here. If someone comes and preaches a false gospel, may they be anathema. May they be judged by God and cast out into utter darkness because they are leading others to that place as well. That's strong language. He says, if I or even an angel from heaven, if I change the message, he says, I am accursed. If an angel comes before us today, (laughs) if an angel stood on the this stage today and proclaim to us a different gospel. We are to reject it. And that angel is accursed. He is a, he's a demonic spirit. He's a lying spirit. How do we know? Well, God has told us what the gospel is in his word. We can discern it. We can rightly know. We must discern. We must discern. We have to grow in our faith. Or you'll be tossed to and fro by like the waves out the ocean on a windy day. You see the caps just keep turning and the, you hear about the undertow and how awful that is. And it's just, there's just this turning on the, on the shoreline. He says, don't be that kind of Christian. Know what God has said. Believe. Hold fast to those things. So when someone comes and teaches something different than God's word, you can discern it. You can, you can come here and dig in and say, this is what God says. Does that match? Does that line up? Acts 17, 10 through 12, we get this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where they arrived and they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So Paul shows up and says, I have a message for you. They're like, I want to hear this message. It's a message from God. Great. We, we want to know what God has to say. He says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And they're like, who is this Jesus? He is the Messiah. He's the only one who can save. And by grace, you're saved. And he starts preaching Jesus from the Old Testament to them. And the Bereans are listening. And it says, they received the word with all eagerness. They're eager. They want God's revelation They want what God wants to tell them. They're listening, but they're discerning. It says they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the Bereans tested everything Paul said. That would feel weird today, wouldn't it? Like if Paul was before us, the apostle Paul, and he's like, I'm going to bring a sermon today out of my letter I, read, I wrote to the Galatians, we would just be like, yeah, man, like, I'm just whatever he says. Like, but Paul says, they tested me, and you should test. You should test everything. Be discerning. And if you're not good at discerning, pray for discernment. Because God wants you to be discerning because it's a spiritual gift. He says, I will give you the gift of discernment. As a church, we should be discerning everything. 
So there's so many things out in this world that try to distract and pull us away and divide us and tear us down. The enemy does not want a strong lighthouse in this community. He wants us not focused on the gospel, not focused on the love of God that draws us together and makes us one man. He wants us focused on the peripheral, divided and looking at different things. And he wants us to believe these other doctrines that are out there and let them creep in. And so we must discern everything and stay holding fast to the gospel. Now, as I say, an angel from heaven, you might be thinking of someone like Joseph Smith and how the Mormons got their, their religion that they have today. And the angel came and said, here's the truth. And he said, here's what I believe. You may be thinking of others who have had angelic visitations and, and they've talked about their encounters and, and some of those deviate from the gospel. Some of those deviate from scripture. You just got to get on the internet, you can find all kinds of stuff, right? We have to discern. We have to discern because an example is 1 Kings twenty two twenty two, and this is with Ahab. He is given a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. The, God sends this one to Ahab to make him go to war to bring judgment on him. And there's one prophet who says, you're not going to make it. And Ahab doesn't want to listen to it. He wants to listen to the lying spirits. That's the heart of man. Because lying spirits want you to hear good things, and they want you to be like, oh, I want that. Not what God wants. But as we delight in the things of God, that's what we should want. And that's what we should just want more of. And that's what... We have to discern. We have to be able to pull these things apart. Paul's thinking, I believe, when he says this about angels, going back all the way to the garden, to that special angel who came down and spoke to Eve. Ezekiel 28, 14 talks about this guy. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, uh, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Satan. This angel came down and he says to Eve, did God really say that? You won't really die. No, that's, that's bad news. The good news is that you can be like God. The good news is that you can eat of that fruit and be just like him. That's a gospel worth taking, isn't it, Eve? She's like, yeah, I want to be like God. So we must discern. Paul says, if you hear something other than what has been given through Christ, the revelation given to us in the scriptures, through what he's been preaching and the apostles preached as the foundation of salvation, then it is to be accursed. So when I hear of new revelation that changes scripture or gives a, a new letter to be considered, there's always another letter they unearth that needs to be in our Bible. There's always another one that comes up, it seems like, uh, that needs to be in the canon. And when I hear of new translations that changed the truth of, of the scriptures, I, and I believe Paul would say, be careful, do not move away from Christ and his gospel. Discern with diligence. Don't be yoked to a gospel or teaching that does not bring you closer to Jesus. These things only cause you to drift away. So why do people change? Verse 10, 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So one reason people change the gospel, fear of man is one reason. Like if I know what you guys like to hear, I'll tell you what you want to hear and itch your, or tickle your itching ears, as Timothy puts it. Fear of man. We want to be liked or accepted No one likes people thinking or saying harsh things about them. So out of fear, people change the gospel a little bit. They change some of the parameters. They change some of the the ways that we can be accepted or or how we're accepted or how broad the acceptance is. And they, they do this so that they can have men speaking well of them, that they can not feel as if they've done something bad because people are saying, that's too narrow, that's too harsh, that Jesus only thing is not good. So out of fear of man is one. Pride is another. Pride's another reason people change it. There are stern leaders who demand fidelity to their teaching and are filled with pride and, and being associated with the other right teachers and that right group in which they all belong. And they affirm one another by their teaching. And they like that they protect the status of being right. So some have changed the gospel in pride. Jealousy of others is another. Jealousy for larger fellowships. They, they see gatherings, they see larger fellowships as, as a threat to their perceived success. Like, oh, if my fellowship's not big, I must not be successful. What are they doing? What are they doing? And so they, they, they have this jealousy for large attention. And so they, they're working and working and working and tinkering and altering and changing. And they innovate to get the largest fellowship they can. There may be many other reasons. You might think of a few yourself while you're sitting there, why people change the gospel to please men. But Paul says, at the end of the day, I just want to please God. At the end of the day, I want to stand before him and know that I've done everything he's asked me to do. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. He says, that's what's important. Psalm 16, verses one and two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We have no good apart from Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we close, and we pray and we sing this final song together, what is your hope in? What is your gospel? Have you been hoping in false gospels that actually aren't gospels? If you have, if you have found that as you're listening to me today, you have put your hope and trust in other things, come. Come to Jesus. Repent of sin. Receive him by grace and he will give you new life. It's that simple. Because he has done everything on the cross for you. His life, death, burial, and resurrection is the securing of your forgiveness of sin and the promise of new life. You just say, Lord, I believe. Maybe for some of us we've come and we've believed on Christ and we find that today we've been tossed to and fro. We're not living in the love of God that he has for us, that grace and peace. He says in the gospel, come again. Come back to Jesus. Draw near 
May grace be applied to you. And just pray, God, you know where I am. I need your grace again. I need your peace. Help me draw near. Holy Spirit, show me those areas in which I'm clinging onto and help me to cling to Jesus in those areas so that I may receive peace, his peace beyond understanding. Grace and peace. And I pray that we all would ask God as we pray quietly, as we're singing, Holy Spirit, help me walk and live in a manner worthy of this gospel. Will you stand with me? I'll pray for you. We'll sing. Uh, Worship team, you can come up. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that we can be made new and that we can be right and that you have love that you just lavish on us and you delight in us and you're glad in us. And God, we are so just in awe of who you are. So we want to lift up praise to you. We want to lift up our singing as we close with thanksgiving for the great grace and love that is given through the gospel. Father, make us discerning. May we discern right now where we truly are. If there is any here who have put their hope in a a false gospel, as Paul has pointed out, may they repent today of sin and of trying to strive to find right relationship in their own strength with you. And may they just come. May they just come and receive grace and be born again. For those of us who have been tossed, Father, show us where we need peace, where we need to let go. Holy Spirit, right now, just show us those areas of life that that you're working on, that you want to change. And may we have grace with one another as we are being transformed. And Father, may we all live a life worthy of this gospel, this great love that's been lavished on us by Jesus at the cross. May you be glorified in our life, and may you be glorified in your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.